We're going to be talking about medical missions and culture this afternoon. Have a good long time for questions at the end, so um, keep any questions you want to ask, and we hope to have a good discussion. This is where I come from. This is my family, uh, my wife, Wani, and Nathan and Kevin. That was taken just about two years ago, the last time that we were in Thailand together as a family. Um, I worked uh, at a mission hospital in central Thailand, about 100 miles north of uh, Bangkok. Worked there for 20 years. And then the Lord called me back to the States to mobilize. Can't hear. Is that any better? I'll try to. It means I can't roam. <laughs> oh, this, might, this might work. So, yeah, keep your, put your hand back up if it doesn't work too well. Okay. So this was our family. Um, my background is uh, working as a surgeon at a mission hospital in central Thailand for 20 years. And then the Lord called my family and me back to the States to mobilize for 10 years. And now in my first, second, or third retirement, I'm um, mobilizing for medical missions. And hence the continued interest in uh, medical work around the world. A love letter from Alexandria. In his remarkable book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark tells of a letter that was written 1 BC, so 2017 years ago, from a young man named Hilarion to his pregnant wife, Alice. Know that I am in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. You have sent me word. Don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Stark reports that these attitudes and practices persisted for centuries. Life was cheap especially if you were a slave or a girl. But things were different in the Christian subculture, started by Jesus and Paul and his missionary band. During the first, first few centuries A.D., they did not use abortion for birth control, and they did not use infanticide to kill their unwanted baby girls. They didn't marry off their girls in their early teens, they waited until they were older. Their women had status in society. And when there were plagues and difficulties, they didn't run out of the city, but they took care of their own family and took care of their neighbors around them. They were totally countercultural. Christians in the, early, in the early centuries had an immense impact on the people around them, not so much because of what they preached or what they taught, it was what they believed lived out in practice. And this made an intense impact on the people around them. This talk is about culture. The early Christians were countercultural, and so have many of us been countercultural. And so today, we want to think culture. What is culture? I have a couple of diagrams that I've. Um, photographed from different sources to try to explain culture so that we know what we're talking about. 
The term culture is the label anthropologists give to structured customs and underlying worldview assumptions which govern people's lives. The kinds of things that we don't usually think about, like a fish doesn't think about water. That's all it knows how to live in. We don't think about air. Culture, including worldview, is a people's way of life. They're designed for living. Their way of coping with their biological, physical, and social environment. So what is worldview? If you look at the layers of the onion, you'll see behavior. What people do is what we see at the outer level of the onion. And what we do is based on our values and beliefs. And below them are the worldviews that we don't usually articulate. But we're encouraged to articulate so we know what we think and how we think and how we're different from even the peoples around us in the United States. Some people have said that culture is like a river. And if you know rivers or oceans, you know that there is a surface that you can see and then there is a depth to the river with, with even a faster current or a slower current or one that's moving in an eddy, very different. And so just as culture is like a river, within cultures there are subcultures. So we talk about Western culture or African culture or Asian culture. And then within that, uh, we have Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, African Americans, Japanese Americans. And then within these groups, um, we have community cultures. My wife is Thai. And uh, when we first, went to, first came to the United States, her English was pretty good. But then she sat down at a Thompson dinner and with all of the talk about politics and sports, and all the things happening locally. And she was lost. She spoke English, but here was a new culture being revealed to her within a family, the family culture. We talk about corporate cultures. We talk about mission agency cultures. And these, are, these all have validity in understanding, uh, in understanding cultures. So the one of the important distinctions that we're making today is between culture and society. I've said this is medical missions and culture, but really we're talking about the society or the people. And so if culture, if medical missions is going to impact culture, it first does so through people, how they think and what they do. And then it filters down to a cultural and worldview level. Culture refers to the structure. Society refers to the people. When we talk about pressure, we don't talk about culture pressure. We talk about peer pressure or the pressure of society around us to do or not do something. One missionary from Nigeria said it like this. We encounter many new cultures when we go overseas. There is the national culture of the country, the community culture of our home and work, the hospital culture, the missionary culture, the agency culture, and then church culture. Or there's a real simple way of looking at culture. This is the way we do things here. And you get used to it. And when we went to Thailand, we got used to how Thai people think and do things. So today, what are you going to do? Think culture. How many of you have traveled to another country, another culture? Most of you. So you know to some extent what it's like to think differently. 
But I can tell you right now that for those of you who have been short-term and think you know culture, you really won't know it or understand it until you've been there for a couple of years. And that's when it begins to hit. And that's when it becomes difficult. And that's when you might begin to be a little bit more critical of what you see. Well, we're going to... So we've looked a little bit about the meaning of culture. What about us? The nature of medical missionaries, of healthcare workers who want to go around the world and make a difference. We're all very well trained, no matter what our specialty. Doctors, nurses, pharmacists, dentists, whatever. We're well trained. We want to make a difference. We mean well. Uh, we're idealistic. We think we can change things. And that's good. I always say if you're not idealistic when you're young, it, it's not something that grows on you. But sometimes the idealism of youth needs to be tempered with experience of realism in a foreign place, in a different way of thinking things, a different way of doing things. That's very important. And as medical people, I guess when I went to Thailand, I thought I knew more than all the Thai people did. And I was very wrong. And it, was a, it took a long time to... to work through my cultural arrogance. Most Americans tend to think that they're better than people around the world. And that's not necessarily true. We're not. We have a lot to learn. And one of the things I learned from going to Thailand was I never really understood American culture until I had been elsewhere and then came back to the United States and looked at the U.S. with a different lens. And I came back much more critical of the United States than I had ever been before. I was angry with some things. And then when the national anthem played, I tended to tear up a little bit sooner than before. So there was this paradoxical uh, uh, welling up of emotions, both more, more upset with what happens here and then more loving what was here all, all at the same time. And so we really look forward to what we can do and what we can offer to people when we go overseas. And that's all very, very good. The problem is if we, want, if we think that we can um, transplant the kind of medical work that we do here into a foreign setting, that's where we run into problems because we're not likely going to be able to do that. And so one of the things we're going to talk about is not just the, the shock of going to another culture, but the medical culture shock or surgical culture shock, the medical aspect of that shock, shock uh, when we go elsewhere. To, um, to serve the Lord. So in, in preparing for this, I've done a couple of surveys, uh, sending them to medical people that I knew, in, first of all, in East Asia, and then the subcontinent of Asia, the Middle East, and uh, Africa. There are two separate surveys. There are about seven questions. And I've condensed those questions to about three or four for this talk. And the, the overview of it is, first of all, how have you impacted the culture around you, the people, the society, the culture around you through your medical work? And then uh, secondly was beyond that, based on what you saw around you and the practices, what did you go to set out to change? So one was just good practice and the other was you saw some stuff and it's not right. How did you try to change that? So that's the second area. There's, they're both on the same side, what we're doing. But then we come and we say, well, when these medical people went where they went, how were they impacted? 
How were they influenced by the local society? So there, there was a great sense in trying to understand what was going on there. So that's what we're going to deal with, and then we're going to ask, uh, we're going to ask them, so what was medical culture shock like for you? So we'll look at these things from a couple of angles. <clears throat> How have medical missionaries impacted the local culture, religion, and medical practices where they served? First of all, there was a spiritual impact. And here's what a doctor from the subcontinent of Asia wrote. Countless thousands have heard about Jesus through our hospital. Hundreds of churches have been started. Just in 2015, over 500 persons chose to follow Jesus through the witness of this hospital. In partnership with Indian pastors and evangelists and church planners, the effect of the presence of the hospital and its witness have been felt over a wide geographical area. The proclamation of the gospel. Complementing that, another comment from, um, from a medical doctor in Africa. The caring way that people are treated in the hospital. At a recent church planting meeting, talking about church planning, I made the statement that I was not a church planner. Well, the head of the church planner stood up and said, well, I see that you are very much a church planner because every village that I go to that has been to your hospital, the people are more open to listening to the gospel. And so you see the spiritual impact is not just from what people say. It's from observing the compassionate, caring way that people are trying to show the care of Christ. So there's the showing, there's the doing, along with the spoken word. And we see this as holistic ministry. All this, I think, is what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus is our pioneer in medical missions, after all. Another area, um, Dick Bransford was in the, the last talk that I gave, and uh, he has pioneered the care of disabled children in, uh, in Kenya at Kajabi Hospital. And he and people who have worked with him have said that this is a very special opportunity to be able to take care of disabled children. And it's not just the children they're taking care of, it's the mothers. Because the mothers have been ostracized because of the fatalistic thinking of many people. If you're a mother with a disabled child, you're the reason that that child is disabled. And they think very much that you're, you're at fault. And so the, what is the message that Christians have to tell them? This is for God's glory. And so they begin to reach out. They minister to the family at the same time that they're helping the child along with whatever disability that that happens to be. And so these are all spiritual impact through what people are saying, what people are doing, how they're caring in the name of Jesus. Um, fantastic opportunities. Well, what about the uh, physical impact? Here's a quote from uh, Kenya. I have seen the ravages of measles, pertussis, and polio pass with the introduction of immunizations and our mobile, uh, our mobile visits. Women no longer have to have eight children to see four survive. Also, nationals are learning that national doctors can have as much expertise as the white foreigners. And we'll see that in, a, in the next topic. They're training. They're passing it on. For other people. Uh, another comment. We have, see, we have certainly seen a significant change in disease pattern 
in our community over the past 40 years. Do you know that? 40 years? One doctor couple? 40 years? Neonatal tetanus, measles, and leprosy have disappeared. Meningitis and trachoma are greatly reduced. Malaria has decreased by over 95%. AIDS has gone from a death sentence to a treatable disease. Tremendous ministry. Others have said that uh, some of the impact that they make, both uh, you see a combination of uh, spiritual care, physical care, social care, emotional care, showing respect for the people, listening, not judging. Extremes of life care, taking care of young children that are born and taking care of old people, whether it's at an institution or at home. So, as we said, training local health providers. We sort of take that for granted in our day and age, training. Well, sure. But in a lot of cultures in the third world, uh, training has not been done. Why? Because knowledge is power. And to pass on knowledge to someone else is to empower them, and that lowers your status in the community. And so teaching someone else or training someone else, don't take that for granted in another culture. When you're teaching someone else, you are doing something that's countercultural. And we do that because that's what Jesus did. He taught and he passed on his knowledge to other people. Some have tried to work with some of the uh, local practitioners, and some of that is even close to the witch doctors and the, and the, and the mediums, and it's very difficult. But one, one person wrote back and said, where they're not completely bogus, we try to work with them. So that because the people are still going to them first or second to try to help them understand some of the nature of the, the disease and hope that the care that they can deliver would be a, a, a little bit better. So they're talking about community health, nutrition, water supply, sanitation, uh, trying to work in all of these areas. Uh, one doctor from the Middle East responded that uh, there's a consensus that the mission through its medical education and social inputs deeply influenced the development of our country, especially uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So part of this can be understood in uh, a phrase called transfer of values. If you think of an area, central Thailand, half a century ago, 65 years ago, no known Christians, hospitals, closest hospital was uh, probably 100 miles away. And you plop in a hospital and people that care about life and you need employees. And so you're teaching some people who have never had a job before the importance of life. You do the pulse, the blood pressure. You don't make it up. You measure the urine output. You don't fake it. You do all these things. And why do you take the time? They, they think it's a waste of time. I said, because these are people and they're important. And you're teaching discipline. You're teaching punctuality. You're teaching honesty. You don't steal. And they've never heard of anybody that does these kinds of things. And so they haven't heard the gospel yet. Haven't heard anything about Jesus or a creator God but they're seeing people do things in a different way so that we can call this a transfer of values. They're seeing the outer shell. They're seeing the behavior. And when they see the behavior and that looks good and their relatives are getting better, then you begin to teach about the inner core. 
And then you have earned the right to talk about Jesus, about a creator God, and spending time with them in that, in that way. So we move on. So you can't go to a culture without being impressed about some of the sleazier things about different places. I, yeah, sorry, sorry to use that word. Um, there's, a, there's a new book. I just found a new book. And I just lost it. Um, okay. Just found this last week. It's by Marvin J. Newell. Marvin J. Newell was president of uh, Missio Nexus for quite a few years. And he's just written a book called Crossing Cultures in Scripture, Biblical Principles for Missions Practices. So he's gone from Abraham through the Old Testament and seen the characters of the Bible through a cultural lens. And so in the chapter, early chapter on the Old Testament, think. When Adam and Eve were created, perfect. There was perfection. There was no sin. The culture that was emerging with this first couple was perfect. And so when there was the fall and human sin and individual sin that affected society, it also affected culture. And so culture intensely affected by, by sin. And here's what Marvin says that sort of set the stage for why missionaries would think about going and try to, trying to change things. Just what kind of degenerate cultural practices can the gospel challenge and change? Considering, consider the following list of practices that are or have been culturally sanctioned at locales, different locales throughout the world. Suti, wife burning, infanticide, foot binding, body mutilation, abortion, human sacrifice. And when you look at the reasons why God sent the prophets to denounce them and to say that Babylonia and Assyria would be attacking them and sending them into exile, one of the main reasons was that they were following the gods of the people around them, Baal and Chemosh. And one of the most despicable things was offering their babies for child sacrifice. Still done. Voodoo, black magic, white magic, evil eye, polygamy, polyandry, wife swapping, homosexuality, religious prostitution, child brides, female circumcision, honor killing, punishment by amputation, female suppression, incest, genocide, and onward. Culture is deeply flawed. So we have the ideal from God in, in Genesis. And then we have what's happened over the centuries, over the millennia. Do you remember what God told Jeremiah about culture? I mean, the bottom line of this talk is going to be to respect culture and to, and to learn and to be adaptable. But we need to know some of the bad news about culture before we get there. Here's what uh, God told Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah chapter 10. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be ter terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They are cut out of a tree. They are cut. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. 
They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. So God and his truth is supercultural. I think God's judgment stands over all cultures. And yet some cultures definitely have more good than others. And so this is a sense in which there's a mutual interaction in medical missions uh, between cultures. And how can we be part of the gospel going in and shining light into the places where many of you have already gone and some of you may be going in the future? Okay, so are there any harmful or bad medical practices that medical missionaries have set out to change? And if you've already been there, you can be thinking of what you were doing in your area. A lady who practiced in Bangladesh wrote uh, the practice of DNC for birth control and then starving or severely limiting the mother's caloric intake and water after delivery. Uh, right now, I'm finishing up the biography of Dr. Ida Scudder, Dr. Ida. She was the founder of Valor Christian Medical College. And uh, she tells many stories of going into uh, women's homes after they had delivered and finding that they were, had almost been starved to death. And some of them she was able to help and others were beyond help. And so just being shocked at what was happening and then trying to offer in a culturally sensitive way help for many of these people. Uh, trying to help uh, untrained midwives and, and their practices um, some working with the Maasai uh, said that um, they give a strong herb to the ladies after they have delivered. And sometimes that causes anemia or a total wipeout of all their, of all their blood. And then vesicovaginal fistulas are a large problem in many parts of Africa. And so the challenge to keep your daughters, don't let them get married until they're in their at least mid-teens or older teens because many of them are being promised or married off when they're 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, tremendous issue. From East Asia, uh, reports that some cultures keep the mothers and the babies indoors for over three months, for 100 days. They don't let them outdoors. And so what do you think happens to, um, to the children? They develop rickets. They can't metabolize vitamin D. They don't have the sun to be able to metabolize the vitamin D. And so trying to change that superstitious practice. So other problems, things they try to, please don't delay. If you've got an issue, come in early. If, if there's a mass, come in early. If there's an infection, come in early rather than the delay. Uh, obstructed labor, burns, contractures, snake bites. One uh, missionary wrote, cultural practices are challenging to change when steeped in worldview, thousands of years of tradition, and local political correctness. And that um, probably sums it up pretty well. So another question I asked to come at it from a different angle was, okay, in your experience, in your, especially in the first year of going to another country, another culture, and beginning your medical work. Uh, well, how would you describe your medical culture shock? 
And this is what um, some of the people said, uh, that life is so cheap. And as you read from 2,000 years ago, especially if you're a slave or a girl, um, regarding abortion, uh, that some, especially in Muslim societies, uh, some husbands didn't want to give blood for a woman who needed a cesarean section or who was bleeding, uh, said, oh, I can just go marry another woman. And just totally shocked at these kinds of attitudes. Um, and many didn't understand that an unborn child uh, was a person and so had no, uh, no respect for life at the early end of the spectrum. I can actually continue to struggle with the treatment of women here and their lack of value in the family economy um, and then just leaving the women to die. Uh, pediatric illness, seeing children dying, that's difficult for, um, for everyone as they try to adapt to a new culture and new medical care. Shocked at the lack of supplies, at the advanced state of pathology, uh, shocked that one of the lady doctors in the Democratic Republic of the Congo said, this was a lady doctor, women are so complicated. Said, every time I try to ask questions of a woman, they, I know they're lying and I, and I can't get behind the veneer of what's going on. And so one of the things that she tried to do in her adapting to the culture was instead of just giving orders, was trying to uh, remember to tell stories. Get truth, not through transactional, do this, but try to tell a story so they could grasp the significance of why, uh, why that was important. <clears throat> uh, from our East Asia colleagues, um, emphasis on economy and finances. Um, in the States, we have a patient, look the patient in the eye, say, uh, this is what I've, you know, from talking to you, from the examination, from the lab, this is what I see, this is what I think you should do. Straightforward. If you're in Asia or in Africa, uh, most likely you shouldn't be looking the patient in the eye. You should be looking at the family assembled behind and try to find out who's the power broker. Who holds the strings? Who's got the money? Who's the one who's going to try to, who's the one who's going to decide whether that person gets the operation or not, the treatment or not, the drugs or not. I remember when I was young <clears throat> in central Thailand, one of our leaders at one of the conferences we held there said, whenever you get invited into a Thai person's home, consider it an honor and a privilege. And when you go there for whatever reason and who you're meeting, make sure you look around the room and catch the eye of the grandfather or the grandmother off in the corner and make sure that you walk over and you greet them and you show respect to them. And that shows when you're beginning to adapt to another culture. And instead of just the individualistic uh, American, you're seeing them as a family, you're seeing them as a society, and you're treating them like that. And that helps us as we approach the, um, the medical issues. So uh, I've actually jumped into the question four. Have, have medical missionaries adapted to or been influenced by the local culture? I think one of the first things that I noticed when I walked into the hospital in central Thailand was that uh, toward the evening, if you go early in the morning or toward the evening, the patient will be in the bed and one or a number of the family members will be on the floor under the bed. So uh, disease, illness, 
hospitalization is still a family matter. Um, in the States, we're kind of moving in that direction where there are uh, cots and beds alongside of beds in, in patients' rooms, which probably didn't exist 20 years ago. But we're moving more in the direction of the third world uh, from that standpoint. How have medical missionaries adapted to or been influenced by the local culture? Uh, one lady doctor from Bangladesh says Purda, the separation of the se uh, sexes in a, in a Muslim society. So instead of having the hospital um, mixed in terms of outpatient and where the beds are, they'd have uh, wards that were all male on one side of the hospital and wards that were all female on the other side of the hospital. And in the outpatient department, pretty much the same way, women on one side, men on the other side, trying to adapt to the local custom. And then one doctor from Nigeria said that when I got there, all of the um, chaplains were male. Well, they, they can't minister in any way to, to the women, to the patients, to the, to the family members. And so um, they said there was just no interaction. So the solution was to have the uh, male chaplains train some, some women so that they could be chaplains as well. And some, peop uh, some of the women who had had some Bible training and had the heart for evangelism. Um, and that's how they approached uh, that problem in that hospital in Nigeria. Task versus relationship. I'm a task-oriented person. It took me a while to realize that I was there for not only the, the job I was doing, but the journey and the relationships that I would be making along the way. And I think that's one of the greatest things that working in the third world taught me, the importance of relationships. Um, we talk about individual versus community or individual versus society. And and we have a lot, we as Americans have a lot to learn from the third world about the importance of family and community. And um, that's what um, my friends in Africa have learned and also friends in um, that large country in East Asia. Tailored treatment plans to local resources. Um, some of the responses I got were similar to our experiences in central Thailand. One doctor wrote and said he didn't want to um, buy a CT scan for his hospital, not only because of the expense, but because of the uh, continuing expense of keeping it maintained, keeping it repaired. Um, what we did in our hospital in central Thailand, uh, we knew we would never get a CT scan, but there was a government hospital that we made a contract with that was 30 miles away. They actually sent their ambulance to pick up the patient for the CT scan, drove it back to get the scan, and then sent, it, sent the patient back with the radiologist report and, and, and the films. So there are ways to get around uh, the expensive way to go. Uh, one of my experiences and that of other surgeons was we go to surgical meetings in our country, and they're excellent surgical conferences in, in Thailand. So they have surgical reps and drug reps like anywhere else, and they're trying to sell um, staplers for intestinal anastomoses. So um, you're wop, uh, lopping off a part of the stomach and you put a stapler and then you cut it and it's all clean and it puts the staples through and it's so much faster. But then when I ask the uh, rep, so how much does that cost? Well, I did some mental calculations when he told me the cost and the cost of one squeeze of one stapler was about 75% of what we charged for the whole operation. And we're thinking, 
maybe not. Maybe we'll just continue doing this uh, for our surgical intestinal, intestinal anastomoses. And so trying to always adapt uh, the treatment that you're offering to the local economy so that you're not pricing yourself out of their economy and their ability to uh, take part in the, in the treatment process. So we've talked about uh, family versus individual and decision-making um, and the importance of communication and telling stories. Um, insights from colleagues in East Asia. Um, explaining bad news. Uh, one of the, uh, another speaker in another class was talking about um, <coughs> working in Cambodia. And uh, the Cambodian doctor was telling this family that, this, that a girl who was probably in-stage uh, cardiac disease uh, probably was not going to live very long. And uh, this doctor talked about getting a heart transplant and she'd be good as new and she'd be able to have kids and all these kinds of things. And, and the, the reason behind this, uh, Cambodia is a Buddhist society, Thailand's a Buddhist society. And so no good Buddhist wants to say anything that's going to make someone sad. I mean, the sadness comes later, but they don't want to say it face to face. And so a lot of us going there have a hard time when the family doesn't want the patient to know that they're likely to die within a month or two. And sometimes we accommodate when the patient is very old and um, we say, well, maybe that's not the best thing, but yeah, you, you take care of it. But we really have a hard time when the patient is in his 40s, has a young family. And uh, they're trying to say everything's going to be okay. And then you don't have a say uh, in helping them deal with the issues of losing the breadwinner uh, at, at a very er early age. And so there's some of the struggles that we, that we deal with. You might say, well, just go and tell them. You're dealing with cultural issues. And, and, and if you're going to do that, you need to find a good way and spend a lot of time with the family, not just the patient, in working through these issues. One of the really good responses to this question was uh, someone who had worked in Africa who's on the home side now. And he said, well, um, sometimes we adapt to, lo adapt to local practices, but it's not really a very good idea. Uh, for example, every patient who comes in wants an intravenous line or wants an injection or wants something. Um, it, uh, my experience was funny. The first week that I worked at this hospital in central Thailand, just a year of Thai, I had a nurse aide helping me. And uh, so I listened to the patient, did some studies, examination, said, you know, I've got good news for you. You look pretty good. You can go. Uh, you're, 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 you're healthy, and congratulations for taking good care of yourself. So I said that she could leave. And the nurse aide who was helping me said, Dr. Neal, you can't do that. You have to give them something. And then I learned on my very first day that they expect to get something. And so what's our accommodation? Well, I guess they all need vitamins. They all need worm medicine. Uh, and you can give them an injection of uh, B compound or something. And so you find a way to accommodate to what people expect to get when they come in. Not best for them, but you've got to build trust somehow. Something like that. Um, one, of, uh, one of our doctors in that big country in East Asia said that uh, a couple of years ago, he himself got typhoid. Now, 
any patient in that country who got typhoid would expect uh, intravenous line for a couple of days and intravenous antibiotics to treat it. He'd been telling them for years that none of that was necessary. And so for he treated himself and made a point of telling people that he only took the oral antibiotic that was necessary to treat, to treat typhoid. He didn't get the IVs. They were all shocked. They thought he was going to die. He doesn't know if he made a great impact on their thinking, but he made himself an object lesson so that they could see what was not necessary in medical care. So, how medical missionaries influence culture? Summary. Excellent uh, spiritual impact, excellent medical care, many areas, eradicating some diseases in some parts of Africa, Thailand. Um, there probably is no malaria in Thailand today. There's no malaria in parts of Kenya, Tanzania, perhaps Nigeria. Uh, tr uh, training the local people, letting the local people see that their leaders can become doctors and uh, that, th that they can trust them. Um, contributing to the development of a country, um, modeling honesty and fairness, and then showing that uh, life is sacred. And that only comes from knowing a creator God. And then how medical missions is influenced by culture. And we've talked about gender issues, um, didn't talk about tribal issues so much. Some of the uh, doctors from Africa were talking about being so hard, not only in the treatment of patients, but when they were in, in management and administration, um, the pressure from some employees to hire their family who were their tribe and to not go against the tribal um, animosity that existed in their area and how difficult that was. Poor resource areas, time issues, um, that kind of thing. Well, you've all heard of IQ. You all have a very high IQ. Uh, you've heard of EQ. Some of you, and I probably couldn't tell by looking at you, who's got very high EQs, emotional intelligence, and who doesn't have such a high uh, emotional in intelligence. But when we're thinking culture, you need to think CQ, cultural intelligence. Uh, author David Livermore, you can find him in the bibliography, has written a number of books on, um, on uh, cultural intelligence, leading with cultural intelligence, and he's become very popular in the business world, teaching business people how to interact better across cultures, even if they don't speak the language. So thinking, going into a new situation, as bad as it might be, to, be, to not be judging, to try to find good points building points, talking points, thinking, modeling gen generosity and grace, communicating, better, co better communication with people, always going into a new cultural situation, even though we're Americans, there's a lot we can learn. Don't forget that and find what you can learn in a, in a country that's uh, in a place that's halfway around the world. Listening and then modeling compassion and um, <coughs> and mercy. One of, um, one of my favorite doctors in that large country in East Asia wrote uh, about a story 
of, of an event that, he, uh, that happened to him one afternoon when he was finished work. He worked in a fairly large government hospital. He was an anesthesiologist, and uh, he worked in different departments. And one afternoon, he, he had a break, and he went outside to one of the local vendors. He wanted some ice cream. So he got the ice cream that he wanted, and he went to pay the vendor, and the vendor wouldn't take anything, wouldn't take any money. And he said, that's not right. You know, I want this. I, I want this. I should be paying you for it. And then she began to preach. And, you know, if you've been in this large country, you know, they want everybody to hear. And so she said, I've been watching you. I've seen you with these, she called them dirty villagers. And you touch them and you show respect and you keep them covered. And you take care of them in a way that I've never seen any of our people take care of the patients in this hospital. And I just want to thank you. And I wish that all of our doctors were like you. And that was her message. He probably hadn't said anything to her about Jesus Christ or God. Probably hadn't preached in any way. But she saw in his life something she had never seen before. And she knew that she wanted that. And that's part of what we have to offer um, when we think of culture and medical missions and the mutual impact of uh, one on the other. So we have a bibliography. They'll be on the uh, Word document and the PowerPoint. Any questions? Just, uh, just the ones I can answer. <laughs> I answered all your questions. Wow. Yes. I think it depends uh, where you've been and what the local people think of their own medical system. Um, some don't think very highly of their own medical system and you have white skin and they might run to you and be very eager to be taken care of by you. But uh, regardless of that, I think it's good if you can observe others and how they practice, both the, um, the, uh, your Western colleagues, uh, watch them and how they uh, relate to the patients and uh, how they take the history and that kind of thing. And then you want to see uh, if there are national doctors there. I think it would be good to observe for as long as you can before you actually begin to practice yourself. Um, to Learn, learn as much as you can before you enter into it. And again, uh, trying to not be judgmental and trying to be sensitive to where they are. And some of these patients, they've been five or, they might have been five or six places before they visited this clinic or hospital or wherever you might be. Um, so I think that's, that's what I would do. Yeah. Yes. What is a lesson that you have learned in, like, when you, if you were, or when you were being well, you had good intentions, but then it ended up not being, it wasn't received well, or just something that changed the way that you went forward after that moment? It was an aha moment. Hmm. That's a very good question. Uh, question. Uh, what were some lessons that I learned, uh, something that I did that, that I really blew it um, in the beginning and then learned from it? Um, 
I think that in uh, the early years uh, as a surgeon at this hospital, probably very insecure myself, and especially on the operating room staff and very, very, very hard on them. Um, and sometimes I blame them for things they did wrong. And then I think back a couple of years ago, well, maybe I used the wrong word. Maybe I said something wrong because my tie wasn't all that good. Um, so one of the things I learned early on was that um, as a foreigner, if I really blew it, if I got mad or if I was angry, which is really taboo in Thai, uh, to go and apologize as soon as possible and to go let them uh, to, to try to let them know that I wanted to maintain a good working relationship in what we were doing. And while it while the work and the task was all important, we still wanted to um, to work to work together. So that's one that came to mind uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Thank you. And that's good to keep in mind. And, and, and I like the thrust of the question. It's not just that you blew it, because if you go overseas, everybody's going to blow it at one time or another and make a mistake. But how willing are you to learn from that experience and then to use that as, as a growing experience uh, as you work with other people? Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Uh, in the in the surveys that I did and the work that I did, what was the bridge between um, the work that we did and the things that we said? Wow. One of the things that I learned uh, probably on my first or second furlough, the first or second home assignment was going to a CMDA national meeting and they were, uh, CMDA was just beginning to talk about the saline so solution. And one of the things that I never forgot was explaining about faith, faith flags. And I thought, oh, well, I'm not practicing in the U.S., but I can try that in central Th Thailand. And so I found out that it's uh, not always so important for what you want to say to someone because they may or may not be ready for what you have to say to them but to try to be very sensitive to what other people are sharing and then try to meet their need. Um, in many of the places that, you've, that you're from and where you've worked, um, you'll understand this story. A, a young lady came to me probably in her late 20s. She had been married for five years, hadn't had any children, and that was a flag. Uh, then you know she had some symptoms which couldn't quite fit together. And then um, I thought, Oh, um, so tell me about your home life. Tell me about your husband. And she just broke into tears. Um, I don't often get accused of being all that sensitive, but um, I, was, I was listening that day. And, uh, and this led to a discussion about her. And many of you know in your cultures, if a, if a woman can't have children, their man is going to be out running around with other women, and it must be hell for them. Um, very, very difficult life. So we, we, we had a long talk and we were able to work some, some of these things through. Um, but I think be, be looking for what people are saying, which might be a hint as to what's going on in their lives, and then to delve into that rather than going off into some other tangent or just content to write them a prescription. Yes. Um, 
Wow. Uh, in the survey and in my experience, were there any um, cultural aspects that I wasn't sure whether they were good or bad, whether, whether we needed to change them or adapt to them? Hmm. Any of you people have been overseas? Help me. Um, Thank you very much. One thing that I that I thought of, <clears throat> you know, as Westerners, we go over to the third world and we get very irritated when people are late for an appointment or they say, come to my house for dinner at six and nobody's there at eight. You know, and, you know, these things when you're thinking about the job to be done and the kids at home, it just drives you crazy. But at the same time, it is driving you to realize that the relationship is what counts. And by getting angry at these situations, uh, you, you can blow it. And, and it, it's really about who you know and the relationships that you build with people much more than what you're doing. What you're doing is important. I'm not, I'm not discounting the importance of why we're there. But we have to realize, well, every time my wife and I go back to Thailand now, I'm not recounting how many surgical procedures I did when I was there for 20 years. I'm going back and visiting the people that are still there. I'm going back and saying hi to Malik, uh, one of the best scrub techs I ever had. We used to argue about religion, and she used to say to me, you know, this Christianity doesn't make any sense. You know, we Buddhists, we have to work hard. We have to go to the temple. We have to make merit. We have to do it again and again. And here, you Christians, you do something wrong, you ask for forgiveness. The Lord forgives you. They go back and do the same thing again, and it goes over and over. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so this was Malit in the mid-1980s. Well, life goes on. She had some children. We're on home assignment. We go back in the mid-90s. And within a month of when I got back to Thailand, I found out Malit and 12 other people, three of them in, from the operating room, are going down to this resort in the Gulf of Thailand, and they're getting baptized. I thought, oh, my goodness. I didn't lead her to the Lord. I might have had a tiny, you know, I was one of the dots, you know, in the connecting of the dots. And she told me, another Thai have told me that, okay, she was arguing, she was making her point, but throughout all that process, she was watching. Like the lady ice cream vendor in that large country in East Asia. They, they were watching. They were paying attention. And she finally decided that she wanted to be a lord. So imagine my joy when we go back to Thailand, I go back to Monoram Church, 40, 50 people in attendance, and Malik is leading a worship service. Brings tears to my eyes every time I go back. Yeah. It's, just, it's just, just wonderful. You guys are great. Thank you so much. Lord bless you.